This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. Boy, did this week go fast or what? I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Delighted that you tuned in today. Uh, Pray the Lord's blessings on you, not only for today, but for the weekend to come as you go serve our Lord Jesus in church. Whatever it is that you're called to do, do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. For the next hour or so, we'll be taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you live outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877 630 KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer and everything else will be done hands-free. Well, hope you're having a great week, as I said, and being blessed Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be teaching uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to touch on the first 10 verses of the chapter. It's about being an imitator or a mimic of Jesus. Uh, Sunday, I'm in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, going to close out chapter 2, and um, Just pray that the Lord is glorified and people maybe get saved this weekend. Who knows, it might be the last man and woman to get saved and we can all be out of here with Jesus. Well, while we wait your phone calls, let's get to some questions that have been sent in. The first one is from Paul. He says, what did Jesus mean when he told Peter to buy a sword in Luke chapter 22? Uh, Paul, there's a lot of confusion. I've seen this used to justify gun ownership and everything else. This was nothing more than Jesus saying, okay, I've taken care of you up to now. Now remember, the Olivet Discourse has already taken place in Luke chapter 21. Jesus has let them know that he is going to die and things are going to be hard for him. And he says, basically, look, up to now, I've taken care of you. I've been with you. I've protected you. But now I'm going away. And when he told them to buy a sword, Paul, what he means is, well, things are going to get so difficult now, you're going to have to be prepared for the battle to come. Now, I think Jesus used a sword purposely. A sword is a biblical symbol for the word of God. And we really need to, to, to use our, our own spiritual swords. But, but here's what he was saying, as practically as he could. He was saying, I've been with you, I've taken care of you, you've been protected, 
But now when I'm gone, even though I'll still be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit, people are going to come against you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated and insulted. And so now you have to take care of yourself. So go buy a sword. So it was just nothing more, Paul, than a warning. It can't be used to justify gun ownership. I mean, there's nothing wrong with owning guns, but but um, uh, we don't need a justification for it. Uh, this verse was actually not saying anything at all about that. So I hope that makes sense to you. Let's go to line one and talk with Dee uh, from San Antonio. Dee, thanks for calling earlier on the line. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Dee. How about you? I'm fine. Hey, I've been uh, talked to Paula today and Phyllis, and I wanted to um, ask this question since um, they thought it'd be a good idea for me to ask you. Okay. I was watching a um, question. Um, my question is about um, the worship on from Sunday or from Saturday to Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was watching a program on Amazon Prime called From Babylon to America, the prophecy mm-hmm. movie. And one of the things mentioned was that worship on Sunday was changed by the Catholic Church. The documentary gave a lot of information, some of it good, some of it, you know, you got to look it up and see if he was correct. But when they got to the worship on Sunday, they referenced the Catholic Church as the authority for the change. I don't believe this, but I can't find a reference for a change. Um, the resurrection is, should be the answer, am I correct? And then I have another question, and that okay. is, um, what, do you, uh, what are your thoughts on Pastor T.D. Jakes? Um, the reason why I'm asking is I have a family member who is a member of his church, and um, I've been having some thoughts. I just want some thoughts about uh, who he is and what he's about. And if you don't mind, I'll hang up and listen to your answer on the radio. Thank you, Dee. God bless you. I appreciate the, the, the call. Uh, a couple of things. Let me deal with the Sabbath first. And, and uh, you know, Dee, it's not healthy. It's it's not edifying to be listening to those um, scary end times. Uh, the Catholic Church is Babylon. Um, you know, most of that goes back to the book, uh, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. And, and we've taken it in our information age to a completely different level. And we've pronounced that the Pope is the Antichrist. He is not, by the way. Uh, he's not a believer, but he's not the Antichrist either. Um, and and so th- those are really out of balance. You've, you've heard me say before that if you find extremes, there's going to be danger, theological danger, emotional danger. Extremes are not healthy. And so um, the, uh, the idea that the Catholic Church changed the day of worship from Saturday until Sunday, the seventh day to the first day of the week, is simply... Uh, an indication that those people don't read nor do they know their Bibles. The day of worship was changed in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Paul refers to it a couple of times in his epistles. It was changed by the apostles themselves. Now remember, Jesus told them, this is a new covenant written in my blood. The Old Covenant was written to Jews. Sabbath worship was written for Jews, to Jews, and it had nothing to do with those of us who had become believers under this New Covenant. And so, number eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. 
So seven days, they change it to the next day or eight days, the same way that Jews were to be circumcised on the eighth day, um, indicating, well, that's a whole new life. And so when Paul says on the first day of the week, when you gather on the first day of the week, what they've done, D, is they've changed the day of worship in the New Testament. The apostles did, and they did it to celebrate sort of the completion of the Old Covenant and this wonderful new journey embarking on the, the New Covenant that, that is written in Jesus' blood. So the idea is the first day represents the resurrection, the signature event of the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the way that we know what we believe is true. It's the way that we um, um, honor the Lord. It's, it's the way that, that all of the claims that he made about himself and our ability to be forgiven um, validated by an empty tomb. So things changed but it was the Holy Spirit working through the apostles that changed the day of worship. And this is in the very first century. This is when they went out after Jesus uh, had was ascended into the heavens. So, um, again, the, the, the Sabbath worship, the Catholics are the worst people in the world type of stuff is out of balance, and there's a lot of that. So there's a lot better stuff to be watching online than those kind of things. Remember, the basic hermeneutic of Bible interpretation is who is the author speaking to? And if he's speaking to Jews, when, when the, the, the day of worship was established in the Old Testament, well, then that is a covenant for Jews. And he makes it very clear to the children of Israel or to the people of Israel, uh, to the descendants of Abraham over and over and over. And so we have to understand that or we won't be able to make any sense at all of of understanding our New Testament. So um, try to avoid those kinds of, of information, YouTube videos. Um, uh, just balance, balance, balance. It's very, very important. With regard to your second question about T.D. Jakes, uh, T.D. Jakes is, is a big problem. Uh, obviously, he's very popular. He is very beloved. Uh, he is a gifted preacher. Um, two things. Uh, the, the, the minor of the two is that, that he is a prosperity teacher. Um, name it and claim it. and um, um, Just not healthy, well-balanced doctrine at all. Now, the major thing is that T.D. Jakes is and always has been a oneness Pentecostal. A oneness Pentecostal. That means he does not believe in the Trinity. Now, I can't judge his salvation. I don't know him. I tell you all the time um, on this program that if you change the character and the nature of God, then you don't have the right God. You don't have a God that's capable of saving. Um, He has become expert T.D. Jakes has in evading the question that uh, has been asked him directly. If you were to Google, uh, is T.D. Jakes a one is Pentecostal, you'll find all kinds of interviews where he's just sort of skirted the question without answering it. But that's his DNA. He's a one is Pentecostal. He doesn't believe the Father, the Son, the Spirit are separate and distinct. He believes they are all one. Uh, sometimes that's called Jesus only. Um, but um, it, it is aberrant. Christian doctrine. Uh, I personally would would believe that he's saved and just wrong. 
I don't ascribe any impure or improper motive, um, but but um, it, it's it's really dangerous uh, doctrine, and I think we should be aware of it. And I think he ought to be really upfront about it and own it if that's truly what he believes. The Bible clearly declares that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God, manifest in three persons. Not three gods, one God, manifest in three persons. Excuse me, I had to sneeze. That was what that break was all about. <laughs> That's embarrassing when you've got a microphone stuck in your face. So, D, I hope that makes sense to you, but um, um, T.D. Jakes is entertaining. He is certainly a showman, um, but doctrinally, he's got some real issues. Thank you, D. Here's a question from Charlie. He wants to know, Pastor Ron, what do you think of Jonathan Kahn's books? Charlie, I haven't read um, any but The Harbinger, and I didn't read all of that. It just was uh, so upsetting to me. Uh, Jonathan Kahn is a false prophet. He has sold a lot of books. Uh, he's come out with a, a Harbinger 2, I think it's called. Uh, but but remember the whole process of the Harbinger. We're in the very end days. And for you, D, if you're listening still, this is one of those out-of-balance things. Um, he, he says that uh, uh, the things that we're seeing going on in the United States are a harbinger of the very end. And his position is that only two nations are covenant nations with God, and that is Israel, of course, and he's right on that. But he said the other is the United States, and that's simply not true. So, Charlie, uh, I have no uh, use for Jonathan Kahn's books. Uh, if he advertised them as fiction, then you could read them and enjoy them, but he doesn't. Um, God has never made a covenant with the United States of America. Uh, the United States is remarkably absent from all of the end times prophetic scenarios. It's hard for us to believe here in the West. We sort of think, well, the sun sets and rises on on uh, on the United States, but it just doesn't. And as you can see with what's going on in our country now, um, we've just removed ourselves from the place of being blessed by the Lord. And without repentance, national repentance, uh, we're not going to get back in that place of blessing. So, Charlie, I think very little of Jonathan Kahn's books uh, and would, would advise people to stay away from them. hope that helps. Rudy wants to know, does 2 Corinthians 12 teach that there are different levels of heaven and different levels of rewards in heaven? Rudy, in 2 Corinthians 12, when, when Paul talks about he was taken to the third heaven, he wasn't intimating at all that there are different levels of heaven. Uh, the language, if you look, is simply, he's saying that he went to the abode of God, to the dwelling place of God, and he described it this way. The first heaven, we would understand it. We look up in the sky and say, oh yeah, that's that's the first heaven. The second heaven is what we see when we watch spaceships go up into outer space and there's weightlessness and it's all then dark and the spaceship seems to be floating. That's the second heaven. So there's the, the heaven that we can see with our, our eye and then there's a heaven, the second heaven that we can't see. The third heaven that Paul is talking about is the dwelling place of God and it's out and beyond the first and the second heaven. 
And that's the reference he's making. It has nothing to do with different levels of heaven. You know, uh, if you're really good, you go to the third heaven. If you're sort of good, second heaven. If you're not very good, well, you squeak in and you're in the first heaven. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's simply saying he went to the place where God lived. And he says he was shown inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And then, of course, we know that he came back. And by the way, Rudy, this happened following his stoning. He was stoned to death uh, in the city of Lystra. And all of this happened. uh, And it's kind of vague in Paul's mind. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. In other words, just like you would have a hard time, or I'd have a hard time describing that experience. Paul was saying, look, I don't don't really know. I I know I was there. I know the things I saw. But I don't know if I went in the body or I went out of the body. What he's saying is, is, I don't know. What I do know is that I was where God lives. And that's all that he was talking about. Now, Rudy, you asked about rewards, different levels of rewards in heaven. Uh, and rewards when we get there. And the answer to that question is yes. Um, crowns of righteousness will be uh, given and lost based on our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. Uh, this is a judgment, First uh, Corinthians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 12. It's a judgment. James talks about it as well. Um, th- this is a judgment not for salvation, but a judgment of the things that we've did, the things that we've done. Whether, whether they were good or good for nothing. Paul says good or bad, but literally in Greek it's good or good for nothing. And our hearts and our motives are going to be examined. Did we do it for God? Was, was our motive bringing God glory? Or were we doing it for us? Were we doing it selfishly? Did we want people to think we were spiritual? Um, what was our motive? Did we, did we, for instance, giving? Did we give grumbling and complaining that we have to give? Or did we give cheerfully and with a, with a, 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 a cheerful heart? Did we give because we realize that God owns everything? And, and the different things that we did will be judged. We won't be able to make excuses. Yeah, but there won't be any of that. And, uh, and, and there will be different levels of rewards given in heaven. Too much is given, much is required. But when we're faithful with that, believe me, we'll get rewards in heaven that will make it all worthwhile. Rudy, thank you for the question. Gina says, when you pray for something, how long should you keep praying, waiting for God to answer? Gina, when there's something on your heart to pray for, someone or something, then you keep praying continually until you get the answer to your prayers. Now, it doesn't mean that God's always going to do the thing that you're praying for, but he will give you an answer. Remember in that uh, same chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, that I just spoke about, about Paul being taken to third heaven. In that chapter, he talks about a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times, take this thorn away from me, and Jesus said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So it's not always that we're going to get it. It's just that God is going to do what's best. But as long as it's on our heart to keep praying, then we need to keep praying. He told a parable about the persistent widow knocking on the door. This widow is going to wear me out with her, her continual asking, her continual coming to me. Uh, and the whole point of the parable is that we should pray and not give up. Now, Gina, this is really personal to me, 
the question you asked, because Paula, as you may or may not know, prayed for me for 13 years. She got saved in 1970. I got saved in 1991. She prayed for me for 13 years. What if she'd have given up praying? What if she'd have stopped after five years? I mean, we would say that's pretty commendable. She prayed for five years. Or what if she stopped after 12 years? Or what if she stopped two days before I gave my heart to Jesus? But the point is, if it's important enough to ask God to do, there's two principles that we need to remember. The first is it's important enough to keep praying about. Paul says to pray continually or to pray without ceasing. The second principle in answered prayer is if it's important enough for us to ask God to do something, then we need to be able to say to God, okay, God, use me to do it. So just keep praying, Gene, as long as it takes. God's not going to make you wait any longer than is necessary. And Paula, we've talked about this on the program, uh, Paula, when she started praying for me, God had a lot of work to do in her heart, and since she already belonged to God, he said, okay, well, we'll get to him later, but now let's work on you. And so she had a whole bunch of things that she had to deal with God on. She had a bunch of tests that she needed to pass, and to her credit and for my glory, Paula kept praying day in and day out, I'm sure many times a day. Imagine how pleased God was give her the answer to her prayers. So, Gina, keep praying. Keep praying. We're inside five minutes for this half of our program. Here is, um, okay, I'm going to answer that one on the other side of the break. Um, Dennis, here's a good question. Dennis said, Pastor Ron, can I ask your views on how much influence the early church fathers and their writings have on our view of communion? Um, Dennis, let me answer generally and then I'll be specific to the question. I don't think the early church fathers should have a whole lot of influence on our doctrine. Now, there are wonderful heroes, giants of our faith, whose doctrine was really, really good. And yeah, we can stand on their shoulders and, and we can appreciate what they did for us. And, and their writings can influence me. But it is equally true, Dennis, that if you look at the early church fathers and their view of um, doctrinal issues, there's a lot of them that were really, really wrong and really, really goofy. And so you, you, just, you, you, you let them influence you only insofar as their solid doctrinally. That's really important. Just because they were an early church father, because their name was Augustine, or their name was Chrysostom, or, or any of the other church fathers, uh, we don't let them influence us just because they live closer to the time of the original apostles. Now, if I was to say the early church fathers are Paul, Peter, James, and John and the, the writers of our New Testament, then obviously we lean completely on their views. Now, regarding communion specifically, Dennis, um, a lot of the early church fathers were literalists in the sense that, well, take and eat, this is my body. Well, so the cracker becomes the body of the Lord. The, the, the wine that we take or the juice that we take becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. 
you know, I realize that that was the, the, the position of many of the early church fathers, but it is so clearly wrong. Again, I always ruffle feathers when I say that because there are still traditions that hold to transubstantiation, consubstantiation. But the point is, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Communion is a memorial celebration. And there is no view of communion that allows us to say, well, yeah, it really turns into the body of Christ, or it really turns into the blood of Christ. It doesn't. We're to remember his death until he comes. So the memorial view is what the Bible teaches. And all it takes is basic, basic interpretive skills, hermeneutic skills, to understand the point that the Bible is going to make. So Dennis, if you're wrestling with whether or not uh, the, the bread and the, 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 the cup all actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. Uh, just read what the Bible says. When Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you, he was in his body still. He was giving them previews of coming attractions. So it's a view that is um, grounded only in tradition. But there's no biblical view at all for a literal view of communion, the body and the blood actually turning, or, or the, the, the bread and the, and the wine actually becoming the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the question, Dennis. Uh, when we come back, Harold, thanks for calling and holding on. Uh, you'll go first right at the top of the break. You've been listening to the Friday edition of The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR harold thanks for holding on you are on the air Okay, yes. Thank you, Pastor Ron. I thought I'd just mm-hmm. sit in the car for a little bit instead of being in a rush. Uh, you know, I did call yesterday, and I do listen a whole lot more than I do call in. I do pick up your uh, the broadcast of the Bible study in the morning. So sometimes, I think it's at 5.30 or 5, one of those two, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so th- my question is, I, I had a thought. I, w- I was reading uh, Matthew chapter 24, and I believe it's verse 1. I don't have my Bible with me in, in, in the car. I believe where the disciples are asking uh, to tell us about the future, the mysteries. or And I believe chapter, uh, verse 2 is, I tell you this, there won't be one stone left on this temple. And and it just, I, it just went through my mind. Uh, I was thinking, I don't think those stones have ever been put back on, or that has never been <laughs> rebuilt once it was torn down. And, I mean, I know there's a place in Israel where they have things built and this and that and other places, but the way he was describing, there won't be one stone uh, left standing. And I'm thinking that part of that mystery or the 
or he's talking about to this very day. And, um, you know, if you had something to add to that or, I, you know, I was just, I, I can't say that I even had that thought before, but it just popped <laughs> in my mind, you know, yeah, so I'll listen, you, you know, to your thank comment you, on there on the way home. Yeah, thank you. I, I love, uh, I love the question. This is one of my favorite subjects. This is, of course, the Olivet Discourse. And, um, you know, Jesus' disciples were so much like us. You know, he was uh, just looking out over the city of Jerusalem. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God. That the, They are man-made. So in chapter 23, he's, he's looking out over the city of Jerusalem and weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you didn't recognize the time of my coming. And and then he says, look, your house has left you desolate. Now, it's it's impossible for us to imagine what impact that would have had on Jesus' disciples. They were devout Jews, and, and their their perception, even at this late date, of the Messiah when he came was that he would take over and rule and reign. So um, when he says, look, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then as he's walking away, his disciples were so uncomfortable that they changed the subject. It's like, well, lighten up, Jesus. And, and they wanted to be a little more comfortable. Remember, he wasn't uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable. And so they asked him, well, ha, ha, look at the, all these beautiful buildings. They just maybe turned a corner and into full view came the temple. Look at this beautiful building. And Jesus um, wouldn't let him change the subject. He said, you see this building? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. For a Jew, Harold, that was an unthinkable thing. Life without the temple, without the house of God, was an unthinkable thing. It would be as though God failed. And Jesus is saying, look, that's exactly what was going to happen. And between verses 2 and 3 in Matthew 24, same thing in Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 13, I think there was a long pause. They didn't know how to respond to it. And so it says in verse 3 that Jesus, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will these happen and what will be the sign of your coming? And and Jesus would then go into the Olivet Discourse. Now, two things, Harold. First, this happened... Uh, prophecy has has both short-term and long-term fulfillment. This is one of those prophecies. The short-term fulfillment would happen in about 38 years from this point when the Roman general Titus and his army would surround Jerusalem and they would utterly and completely destroy. They would murder the people. They would utterly destroy. Later, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, then you run to the hills. Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Pray for the women that they won't be with child because they couldn't run very fast. And in in uh, Titus, to fulfill the prophecy, um, completely and utterly destroyed the temple. Again, the unthinkable thing in a Jewish mind. So completely fulfilled in 70 A.D., um, Harold, we're now nearly 2,000 years later, and that temple has never been rebuilt. In fact, a Muslim shrine stands at the place um, of that, that, that where, where at least where part of the temple was, 
And um, the idea that Jews would build the temple again uh, is an unthinkable thing in the world that we live in. So there's nothing. The only thing that, the only um, remembrance of the Temple of Herod is the Western Wall. And you will see often on news programs, you'll see Jews standing, um, moving back and forth, praying with their hands, their whole heart, soul, body, and mind at the Western Wall. But there's nothing left of the temple, just as Jesus predicted. So it's never been rebuilt, and it will not be rebuilt until the man that we know as the Antichrist is going to come up with a, a, a plan. This is going to happen after the rapture of the church, so we won't be here for this. But the man that we call the Antichrist is going to come up with a plan. He's going to measure the temple. You can go to Zechariah, uh, also Ezekiel. And there's taking measurements whenever you see in the prophets, measurements being taken, God is marking out his territory. And, um, and the, the Antichrist is going to find out that the Temple Mount is just outside the, the Dome of the Rock or the, the Muslim shrine there. I think, Harold, it's the fourth holiest place in the, in the Islam religion. Uh, and they're going to find that they're just one sits outside the other. And the Antichrist is going to allow them to rebuild the temple. And for the first three and a half years, there will be peace and safety. In the Solomon Discourse, Jesus warns him, when they say peace and safety, beware. Because it's not really going to be peace and safety. And the Antichrist is going to supervise the rebuilding of the temple. It will be done in supernatural speed. It will be magnificent. And uh, at the three and a half year point of the Great Tribulation, the man that we call the Antichrist is going to tire of anybody worshiping anybody but him. So he is going to demand in the Holy of Holies that he is worshiped by Jews as God. And that's when they're going to flee. Um, Isaiah says they're going to go to the rock city of Petra in Jordan, modern day Jordan. Uh, and God is going to, going to keep them safe there as, as though they were on wings of eagles. Um, and, and when that happens, uh, God will preserve them uh, through the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist wants to destroy them all. And um, and then, of course, Jesus will return and we'll be with him. Great question, Harold. Thank you very, very much. Every chance I get to talk. Hey, by the way, to everybody listening, do you really know Jesus is coming soon? Do you really believe that he's coming soon? I pray that's the case. I pray that you do. Here's a question from Nacho. Pastor Ron, is there any correlation to the number seven in respect to no, to Rome, also known as the city of seven hills? We see the return of the Roman Empire in the end times, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And since it is the last empire before earth is judged, could it have a connection with God's view of seven as the number of completion with his final judgment of man and of earth? Is God completing his plan? Um, I, everything you said, Nacho, is correct. I don't think that the number seven, the city of seven hills, uh, I, I don't think that is a, a, a specific sign of the final judgment, although it will be God's final judgment on the earth. You know, the city of, or the Roman Empire, it was never defeated militarily. 
And so when, when in the end, this Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire, and the, the, the European coalition of nations headed by Rome uh, with the Antichrist and then the false prophet as sort of the, the spiritual advisor in, in, in all things, um, um, it's just hard for us to imagine that Rome would ever be the power center of the world again. But that's exactly what's going to happen. The revived Roman Empire will again be in control and it will be um, judged uh, and it will be God's final judgment. I just don't think that the number seven, as it relates to the city of seven hills, you're right, seven is the number of perfection or completion, uh, a finality I like to call it. Uh, I don't think the reference to the city of seven hills ties in with the number seven in that respect. But everything else you said is exactly correct. You know, people will say, well, I don't think Rome is a city. How do you know? Well, Rome has historically been known as a city on seven hills. And and uh, I think that's pretty clear from my understanding of prophecy. Good question, Nacho. Thank you very much. 340-9585. I'd love your calls as we close out the week. This is an anonymous question, and I was going to start reading it. I thought, nope, that'll take too long. Um, here she says, I'm getting discouraged because of COVID. I thought the vaccines would help things get back to normal, and now they're saying it could be lockdowns and masks until 2022. So not really a question, anonymous, just a statement. And I know everybody is getting discouraged because of COVID. If you're not, there's something wrong with you. But we're also not to grow weary in well-doing. So we keep serving in the middle. I think a lot of times we get overwhelmed, we get discouraged, even depressed, because we sort of pull back and we stop serving the Lord. I know there's so many people who have been locked in their homes, figuratively speaking, not not literally by force, but but you know they're they're locked in by fear, and they're getting more and more discouraged, and, and many are getting more and more depressed. Divorce has gone up. Suicide attempts has gone up. Successful suicides are going up. So Anonymous, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't stop serving the Lord. Get out. Be with people. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. And then things will get back to normal for you because you'll be in the middle of God's will. But when we pull back, when we just sit idle, then what happens to us is... Um, um, we we become sort of a sitting duck for the enemy. And if we're not moving, if we're not serving God, if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't mean we have the Holy Spirit when we're born again, but I mean empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we're no match for the devil. And he's going to take every opportunity. Peter says he's as a roaring lion prowling around looking for opportunities to devour. And if we let ourselves get more and more discouraged, then we're going to be devourable. So now, having said that, I share your... I'm amazed that um, with all of the good news that we've had about two vaccine suppliers both with 95% success rates, which is unheard of with vaccines, any type of vaccines. I'm amazed that that isn't the source of hope. I'm amazed that this 
I guess, new administration that's coming in doesn't seize this and say, well, you know, Trump messed everything up, but we're fixing it. Things are back on track. And here comes hope and, and, and getting back to normal, getting the economy going. But that's not what they're doing. I see this as a power grab, a control grab, and they just want to control our movements. Now, they've got political reasons. I'm not going to go into those political reasons on this program. But here's what we've got to do. We've got to make sure that we just don't listen. Imagine, and I think I said this yesterday in the program, Paul and I, we were talking. Think what's been taken from the Christians in this country just this year. Since March, we lost Palm Sunday. We lost Easter the holiest day of our calendar. Now they're trying to force us to lose Thanksgiving or we give thanks to God. And no doubt, they're going to steal Christmas. And I just don't know how we can let them do that. I don't know how we can let them do that. We've got to think. We've got to use our brains And understand these things make no sense. So I know what they're saying. Uh, I think their motives are not uh, our best interest for sure. Um, But we've got to stand with Jesus and fight. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Just hang in there. And uh, I can't imagine much worse than being told I'm going to be in a mask until 2022. Um, I'm just not going to let them steal my joy. I'm not going to let them steal my purpose. I'm certainly not going to let them keep me from doing what God has given me the gift to do. So, Anonymous, I hope that gives you a little bit of encouragement. You can hang in there. Fight, fight, fight. Daryl says, Did Jesus forgive Judas? Daryl, Judas never asked for forgiveness, so the answer is no. Jesus certainly gave Judas all kinds of opportunities to repent. All kinds of opportunities in the upper room, um, what we call the Last Supper. Jesus even said, the one who has betrayed me is in this room. And they would all look around and Judas looked at him and says, is it me, Lord? Here's what he was really saying. Do you know it was me who already sold you out for 30 pieces of silver? Jesus said, yes, it is. And that's when he left. The devil entered him and And the deed was done. But in order to receive forgiveness, you have to ask for it. Judas never did. When Judas led the detachment of Roman soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane, he kissed Jesus on the cheek. You know, as they would in an Eastern culture, once on each side of the cheek. And he said, Jesus did betray us thou the Son of Man with a kiss. So Judas was irredeemable. Jesus calls him the son of perdition, doomed to destruction from before the foundations of the world. So no, Judas was not forgiven, though he could have been. At any given moment, he could have said, Jesus, what have I done? I'm so sorry. And Jesus would have forgiven him. But he never asked. So Jesus did not forgive Judas. 
340-9585. Mary says, Pastor Ron, you talk a lot about just be with Jesus. Mary, I do. I'm, I'm the least original person in the world. Um, I want to simplify our faith as much as I can. And then she says, is it okay sometimes, or no, isn't it okay sometimes just to forget about God and enjoy life? Um, Mary, if I, I'll just speak personally, if I forget about God, I can't enjoy my life. When Christ who is our life appears, Paul writes. Think about that. When Christ who is our life, can you say that? Well, if you want to just forget about God and enjoy life, the answer is you can't say that. Christ is life. He said, I'm the way, the life, and the truth. So, Mary, anything and everything you do with Jesus in his company is infinitely better than anything you'll do without him. So if you want to just take a day off, forget about God, maybe make some notes. Because you're going to write down, this was a pretty miserable day. Spent the whole day with me. Didn't spend the day with Jesus. Bad day. And you're going to see a pattern developing. But if you will spend the day with Jesus, then you're going to realize that every day in his presence is the fullness of joy. Every day will be joyful. Not easy, not happy, not fun necessarily. But every day. Why would you want to take a day off from Jesus, Mary? Why would you want to take a day off from Jesus? So I'm going to keep talking about just be with Jesus. It's the key to life. It's the key to being filled with the Spirit. It's the key to walking in the perfect will of God. It's the key to having an abundant life that Jesus promised to all of us. So Mary, don't take any days off. We don't get them. 340-9585. Here is Jeff calling on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How you doing? Hi, Jeff. Hey, I got a little confused yesterday because I thought you said Mama Paula made stuffing ahead of time. So I rushed over to the church to get in line. But there, there, there was no stuffing made. And, and, then, and then I think Wednesday in the Bible study, I think I got confused too, because I thought you said you were going to be in 1 Samuel. And then I turned on a Bible study, and it was Genesis. And I just got really messed up, and I'm sorry. But I'm back on track now. I'm on track, okay. yes. Yeah, Jeff. I think I think the thing with the, with the with the dressing was more of a suggestion. You know, Paula, you could make it early if you think Jesus is coming soon. So we don't want to miss it. So you make it now. And so that was my my whole point with the with the dressing yesterday. Uh, I was standing in line for it, and Sam came out and chased me away. So he says, "No, there's no <laughs> stuffing here. What are you doing here?" Uh, yeah, I heard you were buying. I'd love to come out and give you a hug. Uh, but we, Paula and I had a counseling session right after. Um, the the radio show yesterday, so our people That's were already right. here when I went out there. I'll, I'll you doing, surprise are you. Are, are you doing well? Yes, uh, I will tell you though. I ask you to pray for my father, well, my stepfather Larry, was just informed that he's been hospitalized the past couple of weeks with with fluid in his lungs, and they just told us today that he has COVID, and he's mm. uh, eighty nine. And uh, I'm I've witnessed to him over the years to to no avail. And now I feel a little lost because, you know, he can't even take phone calls right now. And he's far away. I'm not going to be able to see him. So all I can do is what I've done in the past is pray for him and hope that 
you know, someone gets in there to to talk with him again. But he's he's pretty much a has remained an atheist, and and uh, my my mother died the same, uh, not from COVID, but she died an atheist, and yeah. and asked me to preach her service, and said I, the only condition is that you don't you don't mention Jesus, and and then your homily, which was an impossible but yeah i i've been asked to do that before i just say well you need to get somebody else because i can't stop talking about jesus so jeff will be playing praying for larry keep us posted okay and we'll be praying that god will I open sure the will. door and um, yep. you know there's lots of christians who are ministering to the people who are are in uh, that kind of critical condition so we'll pray that he opens his heart thank you jeff Larry, listeners, you can pray for Larry. Time for one more question. Um, let me take Meredith's question. She said, Pastor Ron, what do you see for the church post-COVID? Um, Meredith, I, 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 I don't know the answer. I, I've said from the beginning of this pandemic that, that God was using this to shake out his church. He didn't cause it, but he uses it and in this case, he's using it to refine his church. And so I, I am hopeful, prayerfully hopeful, that when people come back to church, um, you know, we've got, most of our people are coming back. We, we're in a, um, it's good, we're seeing more and more people every single week. Um, but, but I'm hopeful that what we'll see is people so grateful. Sometimes you don't realize what you've got until it's taken away from you. I'm hoping that we're going to see people so grateful to be back in church that they're going to show up every week saying, okay, Jesus, what about me and what about today? So that's my prayer. Now, I I don't know that that's going to happen because I'm also sure one of the things that we're going to see is I don't think churches will ever go back to the size they were before the pandemic. I think when people are out of church for a month, they're excited to get back. Two months, a little less excited. I think after three months... I think they've got new patterns, new habits um, already formed, and they've figured out a way to put Jesus in some little corner, and they just go about their lives. And I think you're going to see a lot of churches closing. I think there's a lot of churches that need to close, by the way. But I think you're going to see a lot of churches closing, and I think you're going to see a lot of people's faith uh, that will have been proven not to be genuine. He who perseveres to the end will be saved, we're told by the Apostle Paul. But it doesn't mean that you're not saved if you stop going to church. It just means that if you are shaken out by this, you really probably never really belonged to the Lord. So I'm hopeful that we're going to be we're going to see people so grateful, um, so happy to be back with the ability to serve that that churches will be stronger than ever and more filled with the Spirit. I hope this is a time when we really treasure what we miss. David said. Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. I hope that's the, the, the view when we come back, Mary. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a really good week. Short week next week. Remember, it's Thanksgiving. We will not be live on Thursday or Friday. Have a wonderful weekend. Serve Jesus. Take him everywhere you go. We'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye.